Good afternoon and welcome aboard. Happy Wednesday to you. John McGinnis with you, KFPK News Radio. I uh, hope you're having a great day, enjoying the spectacular weather out there. It is a beautiful day. And yeah, we got lots to talk about this afternoon. Actually, uh, later in the program, we're going to do a kind of a deep dive into the uh, mental survival of first responders when they deal with the crises they deal with on the streets on a regular basis. And uh, frankly, the uh, same thing applies to uh, to military veterans uh, in battle. And uh, we're going to talk to uh, an author, a gentleman, a good friend, who's written a book about uh, dealing with those very dynamics. Jim Hyde's going to join us later in the program. But first, I want to talk about something uh, just developed uh, just announced, I should say, out of the federal government, and that is uh, has to do with transport, trans. Uh, I'm sorry, passports, and uh, a new gender option now on U.S. passports. And the U.S. government has actually issued the first passport with X gender marker. This is nothing new to Californians and a handful of other states that have allowed that uh, for driver's licenses and DMV identification cards. But now it's official in Washington. The U.S. State Department uh, said today it had issued the first American passport with an X gender marker designated designated for non-binary, intersex, and gender non-conforming people, a marker other than male or female on their travel document. This is according to a statement. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announced in June that the X marker would be offered as an option on passports following other countries, including Canada, Germany, Australia, and India, uh, which already offer a third gender on documents. Uh, State Department spokesperson Ned Price said in a statement that the United States was moving toward adding the uh, X gender marker as an option for those applying for U.S. passports or consular reports of uh, birth abroad. Um, He did not identify the uh, the holder of the first uh, X gender passport, but civil rights organization Lambda Legal said its uh, client, uh, Dana Zim, was the recipient. Uh, Zim, by the way, is spelled Z-Z-Y-Y-M. Uh, this uh, person, Dana Zim, uh, was quoted as saying, I almost burst into tears when I opened the envelope, pulled out my new passport, and saw the X stamped boldly under sex. An intersex and non-binary U.S. Navy veteran said in a statement on Wednesday, It took six years, but to have an accurate passport, one that doesn't force me to identify as male or female, but recognizes that I am neither, is liberating. That was the uh, the quote from them. Because there's no gender pronouns to be used. Zim, who uses gender-neutral pronouns, they, them, and their, was born with ambiguous sex characteristics. Uh, Lambda Legal said in a statement that Zim underwent several irreversible, painful, and medically unnecessary surgeries after their parents decided to raise them as a boy. After serving in the United States Navy and attending Colorado State University, Zim came to understand they were born intersex, according to the statement. Zim's previous applications for a passport were denied as they required the applicant to select either male or female as gender marker. Uh, There's another quote from Zim. When you're denied the access to go places, it feels like a prison. That was Zim's statement uh, to a television interview uh, today. I would really like to take a fishing trip down to, like, Costa Rica or Mexico or something. So that's kind of like my first dream thing. So that's uh, where that stands. So um, my question for you is, do you see this as progress? And I am not without the capacity to have empathy and compassion for people who find themselves in unique positions. Uh, apparently about 1.3 um, Americans uh, identify as non-binary. I don't know. There's a, 
a pretty wide scale, I have to believe, of people that are in that group, many of whom look very much like a man or a woman, uh, some who don't. But what's the purpose of the passport, not unlike the driver's license or state ID card, what's the purpose of it? The purpose is to uh, establish a person's identity to a great extent, right? And, of course, also track uh, where they go when they travel internationally. Um, but what? How, how does this serve the same purpose if it lacks a, a really, truly fundamental part of, of a person's descriptor? And, and if, you, if you just think about it for a moment, if, uh, if you were asked by somebody to pick up a, uh, uh, a friend at the airport and you didn't know that person, but it was a friend of whomever requested you to make that pickup, what would you want to know about that person as you look for them? Obviously, uh, gender would be very high on the list. Probably the very first thing on the list, right? Uh, race, gender, um, age, hair color, the things that you see first on a person. So as you look at a passport or a driver's license or a state ID card as a, as a mechanism to identify a human being, uh, what value does that have when it, it fails to recognize, I, I think it's safe to say, the first uh, fundamental element of a person's description. So while it's, I think it's uh, it's decent and kind and appropriate to recognize a, a set of circumstances that a person has that uh, that uh, that give, that pre- creates a feeling of uh, of limitations for them. Um, it, does it really truly serve the intended purpose? And of course, we all know from driver's license photographs and passport photographs, probably more so. Uh, the passage of time goes on after that photograph's taken. So having uh, the, the verbal description of a person on those documents really becomes important, right? Uh, the incidence of people who, who lawfully have a passport uh, crashing the, uh, uh, the customs station at an international airport, probably not a, a high a likelihood of occurrence. Nonetheless, if that, uh, if that tool, that passport, is to serve a purpose, isn't uh, isn't that a a critical part of it to help understand what a person may look like? Um, is it judgmental to uh, to draw a conclusion as to a person's physical appearance? Is there is there any any impropriety associating associated with the concept and idea of uh, describing a person in the uh, in the most uh, I guess explicit or conspicuous parts about them? And in terms of just feeling as though you're not a man or a woman, now this this uh, person, um, the first one to get the uh, the uh, ex-gender passport, uh, Dana Zim, uh, served in the United States Navy as as a male, as a man. So I don't know what kinds of changes have been made since that time to that may or may not change the the physical appearance of this person. Uh, but simply because you don't, I don't, you don't feel like you're a man. If if you look like a man, uh, it seems like uh, the male gender would be the appropriate char- choice for identification purposes. I understand these are issues that run deep, and they have a uh, an impact on how a person perceives themselves and how they feel as though they're being treated with regard to respect and their place in society. But that's not the purpose of that passport, nor frankly is it the purpose of a driver's license or state identification card. I like to think of myself as being about six foot ten and able to uh, to dunk, but I'm not. I come up short in that regard. 
Um, I like to think of myself as weighing about 170 pounds, but I come up a little uh, long in that regard, about 50 pounds, as a matter of fact. So it's not a matter of how you feel or, you know, I'd like to be uh, many years younger, uh, but I'm not. So it's, it's, it's what I am, what I appear to be that has to be reflected on those documents that reflect the components of my appearance that help identify me. Isn't that, uh, isn't that the basic purpose for that? Now, I suppose as uh, people take on different appearances, uh, perhaps the uh, the ex-gender might actually serve as a uh, descriptor of sorts, but not everybody who uh, who doesn't feel as though they, they fit either one of the traditional um, binary gender choices uh, has, has a unique appearance. In other words, they may look very much like a man or a woman. So how do you, how do you feel about this? Do you think this is progress? Or is it uh, is it is it an effort to uh, to address the sensitivities of a very 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 small percentage of the population that may or not, may or may not be resolved by it? Frankly, I don't know. Uh, I can't quite relate to it. Obviously, uh, it doesn't mean I don't have empathy or compassion or respect for people who find themselves in that situation. And this particular person, Dana Zim. Um, Apparently was born with uh, some uh, ambiguity as it relates to the the the, the child at birth, uh, but there were surgical remedies introduced by the parents of uh, the person now known as Dana Zim uh, that took on the uh, the boy and then later obviously growing into a man uh, and a very much a male appearance. Uh, so can you reverse all of that simply by checking a box on a passport or driver's license? What do you think? It's a complex, uh, sensitive, delicate issue, uh, but do you think it is progress? Do you think we're moving in the right direction, or is it something other than that? Straightforward question. You'll find that on the John McGinnis page at kpk.com. I neglected to mention that's the poll question. We can also chat about it on the airwaves at 800-834-1530. Welcome back. Thanks for staying on board. John McGinnis with you, KPK News Radio, talking about uh, the new decision, the new uh, so-called progress at uh, the federal government. And you have the big announcement today that the first uh, passport issued under a an ex-gender has become reality in the United States of America. And for the person um, affected by this directly, the person who doesn't does not identify as a man or a woman. I understand. I have empathy for that person and uh, and would try to treat them with the uh, respect they're due, including uh, refraining from use of uh, gender pronouns. I, I, I'm i okay with that. I get it. Certainly understand that uh, we're all wired a bit differently and, uh, and, and accommodate and respect that. But I then have to look at the purpose, the fundamental purpose of that passport as a means by which to identify somebody. And a, a critical component to that is their physical description. Now, again, with the passage of time, things change. Uh, just looked at my driver's license. It still says I have black hair, and the, the photograph reflects that. Well, that's changed. My driver's license has been automatically renewed, so it's not current. But uh, on the other hand, we, we need to have these uh, re- real IDs now in order to, to, at some point, it's been delayed several times, but there's a need for more information to be collected, more data to be shared with the Department of Motor Vehicles before they issue that. I mean, they need things such as Social Security number, utility bills. I don't know what other kinds of identification would be accepted for that purpose. But if, in the course of that, uh, a person chooses to not identify a gender, to, to choose to be gender X, 
you lose a big part of uh, what that uh, document ostensibly seeks to provide in terms of identifying the holder of that driver's license, identification card, passport, whatever the case may be. So is it uh, is it kind of a um, have we lost a part of the uh, recognition of the core need for that? If you think about this for a moment, if uh, if a person is uh, whatever, let's say you have a man who who really truly identifies as as male. Uh, looks like a man, acts like a man, is uh, behaves like a man, uh, but they, they know they're going to live a life of crime, for example, and they want minim, minimal information about them. So they choose to be non-binary. Uh, they choose gender X on their California identification card or driver's license. And then they uh, go out and perpetuate a life of crime, and as their uh, investigative efforts undertaken to try to find people in that area who match the description of a certain person, that person would fly below the radar. And would have no uh, characteristics to be identified uh, or identifiable uh, per the uh, the purpose of that uh, of that document. So uh, again, there at some point there may be sufficient numbers of people in this category that would take on their own appearance. They really don't look like a man or a woman. They look like a non-binary person. Uh, so maybe there's an opportunity at some point to actually establish that. But the 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 fluid ease with which that appearance can change. It just, uh, I, I think it's important to recognize what the basic initial purpose of a passport or an identification card is. Uh, 800-834-1530. Let's get your calls. Let's check in with Pamela, patiently waiting in Sacramento. Pamela, good afternoon. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you for holding on. Thank you, John. I'll be succinct. Although I, too, am empathetic to Dana's unique biological path, apparently I wouldn't be qualified enough to pick up Dana from anywhere, but... John, I have a rhetorical question for you. Is this the same State Department that managed to leave Americans in Afghanistan? Yes. I'll take my answer yes. off the air. Yes, it is. Uh, you're absolutely correct. And it's also the same State Department that, uh, well, is adjacent. Uh, they obviously work in conjunction with Homeland Security uh, that seems to be fine with uh, with having effectively no borders in this country. So, yeah, it's... it's uh, it's very interesting to see how, in in some regards, we want more information, more data, and in other areas, we're just completely and totally abandoning our responsibilities and failing to recognize uh, the, the, how this all got started. Why do we have passports in the first place? Why do we have driver's licenses, state ID cards in the first place? What's the value of that when you leave such a critical component of a person's physical description uh, out of the mix? And I, again, I don't say that with uh, with a lack of uh, compassion for uh, for this person or anybody else who's in that category. But I think there might be a need to uh, to go in a different direction and to call this uh, progress, I think, might be a bit short-sighted. Pamela, I appreciate the call very much, and I think you raise an excellent point. So what what's, what may be next? What else? And, and what's your obligation when you sign? Uh, I think it's still uh, you, you sign that uh, physical description that you provide uh, to the Department of Motor Vehicles under penalty of perjury. And uh, I can tell you that I know uh, many people over the years, you look at somebody's driver's license, and there's a lot of fudging on their uh, height and weight and so forth. Uh, but the, uh, the the fundamentals are pretty much there in terms of how that person projects what they look like, and that is an absolutely essential part of uh, of a basic identification. It's not to pass judgment on people uh, who are different, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I think there's a a, a genuine uh, place and, and an appropriateness associated with treating people uh, with the dignity and respect they deserve, and uh, it's a basic understanding of if um of, of the the fundamentals i i suppose that that, that kind of uh 
identify who people are because we're made up a, a bit differently to, to varying degrees. Uh, but if somebody is struggling with the idea that they cannot, they 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 can't bring themselves to um, to to garner a passport because they they don't feel as though they can check the mail box on a passport application in spite of the fact that they have served in the United States Navy as a man. Uh, they went through school as a, as a boy or a man, uh, respective to their age at the time. Their, uh, all their documentation prior to that event uh, shows that they are a male uh, U.S. citizen. But at that point, they can no longer check that box, and that has infringed upon their ability to travel various places and go on uh, foreign fishing trips and so forth, as, as this person indicates. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a, an appropriateness about recognizing their particular sensitivities, but also I, I think far, a far more importance recognizing the purpose of that passport, what it serves, what's, why we have them. And there is an important component of that for, for homeland security and other concerns. Uh, very, uh, very interesting period of time in which we live, I have to say. Okay, we've got other business to take care of. They're going to be joined by Jim Hyde, who's going to talk about a very, very critical work that he's been engaged in, and that is dealing with the uh, survival of first responders. Welcome back. Thanks for staying on board. John McGinnis with you, KPK News Radio. Uh, shifting gears here, we're going to talk about uh, mental health. Uh, frankly, survival. Talk about the concept of resiliency, which, interestingly enough, is the name of the book we're going to talk about here. Uh, Jim Hyde is the author. He's also an old friend of mine. He's a, he's a law enforcement professional who's distinguished himself in many assignments. Uh, grew up in the ranks in Sacramento, rising to the rank of captain. Actually uh, worked homicide, uh, SWAT, uh, did all of the uh, high-profile activity. Went on to become the chief of police in Davis uh, for a period of time. Then went on from there to be the chief of police in Antioch. But since his uh, retirement from law enforcement, per se... He has uh, gotten into, I think even concurrent with his law enforcement work, uh, the study of, uh, of mental health and survival in, uh, in high-risk, uh, very, very demanding applications. And he's written a book, uh, Resiliency for First Responders, Getting the Job Done No Matter What. And I'm very, very proud and happy and pleased to have Jim Hyde as my guest this afternoon. Jim, good afternoon, sir. Welcome to the conversation. Great to have you. Good afternoon, John. Great to be here. And tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about what you've done here. Tell us about the book, and I can uh, attest to your, uh, to your work and success in the area of uh, especially dealing with uh, first responders and the aftermath of a horrific event. Uh, because I know I've actually had the, uh, the benefit of bringing you in to, to debrief uh, troops after they've had something extraordinary happen and they had to perform uh, to a very high standard, and uh, they're, they're a little exhausted after that, and you help guide them through that. So... Tell us a little bit about uh, the book and set us, set us up any way you like. Well, John, the book is really a culmination of uh, three decades of work of helping first responders of all kinds, um, initially you know, locally in Northern California and then uh, throughout the country and then some work overseas too. So it's, you know, the first part of the book, the first half, is around um, strategies for resiliency for first responders in the crazy times we're in. Yeah. And then the second half of the book is for the families of first responders who pay a very yeah. uh, big price in just trying to support their loved one, carry out the mission of first responderhood, as we call it. It's a big, big, big part of the burden that uh, the people are not as inclined to think of, people outside are not as inclined to recognize, and that is the impact on the family with irregular hours, odd hours, uh, demands all the time, uh, the demand switch that frankly seems to never get turned off. And I'm very interested in the contemporary times because during our time uh, on the street and involved in the 
enforcement of the law and being on call 24-7 and, and all sorts of uh, high-risk activities and shootings and uh, stabbings and murders of children, all that goes with it. We had, at least uh, my, my sense is, uh, we always had a profound sense of public support, very, very, very strong, up to and including uh, people on the street uh, actually approaching for the purpose of, of uh, offering their appreciation. Of course, the political class and the media seem to have a, a significant sense of appreciation for what first responders did. Uh, but I see a significant change, although I do question the... Uh, the extent to which that change really exists, but how how is that affecting your mission now? Well, it's you know that's what's driving the need. So, predominantly, most of my work now is uh, providing peer support training or trauma training uh, to build programs within first responder agencies throughout the uh, country. What we've seen is different than the time you and I served on the street. Is the increase in um, violent crime. Um, also, violent assaults directed towards uh, first responders, in particular yeah. law enforcement, a 51% increase in murders in, so far in 2021, nationwide um, murder of, of law enforcement professionals. Uh, what we're also seeing is this drift over to the violent assaults towards uh, the fire service. Fairfax, Virginia had a, a firefighter killed, shot killed, Montgomery, Alabama, um, they're actually taking rounds on the fire trucks. And in Antioch, California, last year, we had two uh, firefighters, in particular a paramedic who is rendering service to a, a, a man who was uh, shot and left in the street, and a firefighter was assisting, and uh, a shooter came by, probably the one who shot the man, and shot uh, both the uh, fire uh, professionals. So you can just see that level of violence. The other thing we're seeing is just um, you know the impact of COVID the wear and tear, and that's just society, but in particular for first responders. The number one killer of law enforcement in America now in 2020 and 2021 so far is COVID. That's pretty incredible to uh, to comprehend that. One of the things uh, I kind of reflect on, and I don't know if this uh, is borne out in your uh, real legitimate experience, but my sense is, over the time you talk to, uh, my, my uh, area of exposure is overwhelmingly law enforcement, but some fire uh, professionals as well. But you talk to people as they're working in the trenches, and they, they, there seems to be a, a pretty high sense of satisfaction over the years. Uh, there was, uh, I think, a sense of accomplishment, and uh, in spite of some significant challenges, good work being done, and people would talk about retirement. And in many cases, at least this is, I, I suppose, uh, dependent on the local jurisdiction, but uh, people would say, yeah, I'm going to retire, but I'm going to stay on as an annuitant and come back and do some work or do some volunteer work with the department uh, after my retirement. And what I hear now overwhelmingly is they're looking at the calendar and they want to retire and they want to move out of the state. And uh, I don't know how that's uh, working out. I understand you've had some experience in, in uh, dealing with that uh, dynamic. What, what do you see there? Well, on on uh, two things. What we're starting to see, and we started to see it with the recession of, of 08 through 10, where veteran first responders were coming in and saying, I don't know if I can make it to retirement. And these are usually professionals in their 40s, maybe anywhere from, you know, 10 to five years out from uh, retirement. Um, and they're just like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. So they're seeking assistance, usually through peer support programs, um, law enforcement, fire chaplaincies, mental health professionals. Um, the other thing we're seeing is when I ask a class, when I teach, I'll say, how many of you here, when you retire, by a show of hands, plan to leave California in retirement? And it used to be one to two out of ten. 
Mm. Now it's 8 out of 10. Mm. And that's profound. Uh, it is. The other thing that we're seeing is we used to, our kids used to be proud to want to be the next generation of first responders. Yeah. Now what's happening is law first responders saying, you know, maybe you should find something else. I'd be proud if you did, but it's much harder than it used to be at so many levels. So consider doing something else. Or parents are saying, no, don't do that. I'm not going to support you in doing that. Well, I think even the, I, I don't know that this is the case, but I can remember personally going to my kids' schools and making presentations on you know, what what the law enforcement world is all about, Let them, letting kids climb in and out of the patrol car, all that was very, very interesting and compelling to them. My sense is that's not happening today, and I don't know if there's, I have to believe some of the kids have an interest in it still, but is there a, is, are you sensing a, a kind of a change in dynamic in terms of those are not necessarily um, the people that uh, that you want uh, the, the students, the, the youngsters to look up to? Is that is there a change there, and is that how's that being perceived by the officers? Well, it, it still occurs, but it's reduced quite a bit because when officers are calling saying, hey, my son or daughter goes to, say, elementary school at that particular uh, school site, and, you know, I'd be happy to come by and do a little, you know, show and tell about, uh, you know, policing. Um, and what they're getting told is thank you, but no thank you. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, and the other thing, too, is fire service used to do a lot more of the school um, safety um, right. education. But they're pretty shorthanded. So staffing, that's the other um, critical factor here. Staffing is way down across the board for all first responders. Um, they're just, and the ones who are there are worn out and tired. So what's, what's, the, uh, what's the salvation? What's, uh, where, where, where do things get better? Is there a, uh, yeah, but you can uh, rest assured that uh, fill in the blank here. Is there some good news? Well, you know, unlike many issues in society, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth. Um, so one of the things we're trying to do is, is something I learned. I spent uh, 15 years training, deploying soldiers, uh, mostly California, National Guard members and Air National Guard to, um, to build peer support teams for their deploying workforce. Um, and what we saw was the military had a great program um, around family support. I think that's a system we need to build in the first responder community. And you know this, it, yeah. it, it, different roles of leadership is when we'd swear in a new group of, of um, either police officers or firefighters, we'd say, welcome to the family, and right. you're a part of this special family. But we don't see them again in many regards, especially in law enforcement, until there's a funeral or a retirement. So yeah. we need to fix that part. We need to have the family continue to be a part, supported in the mission of first responderhood and supported by the organization. I know that there are a number of local jurisdictions that do a, a very good job, frankly, of including the uh, the families and actually have uh, resources particularly developed and uh, and tapped to uh, to assist uh, the families when things uh, when things go wrong or the appearances that things are going wrong. Uh, but I also am aware of the fact that uh, that uh, it, it does it still takes its toll. So. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful, obviously, at some point. I, I, I want to throw this at you, too, in terms of a question. The, if, if you look at the world through the lens of the, the media, which I think is overwhelmingly influenced by the political world, I think you draw one conclusion as to the public attitudes towards uh, first responders in general, certainly law enforcement in particular. Uh, but I, there, I do encounter anecdotal uh, experiences that, that cause me to believe that, uh, that maybe that's not accurate. In other words, there is a greater sense of appreciation and uh, respect and even fondness uh, for law enforcement, first responders, 
then you might be inclined to uh, conclude from from uh, in, uh, consuming the media's report. Do you think that's valid? Yeah. You know, when you talk to folks in neighborhoods, they're like, hey, we appreciate you no matter what's said. Uh, through uh, you know political sources or media sources, we appreciate you. Please keep coming. Please don't give up on us. You know, it, and we've worked various tough neighborhoods in Sacramento County and Sacramento City. Is you know, there's you know, 99% of people who live in that neighborhood just want to get through another day. Right. But there's that one house, that one person in the yep. neighborhood just brings nightmares to everybody. And um, so, you know, they still need us. They still want us. But, you know, it's hard to stay in, in the profession of first responderhood when you hear um, politicians and media criticizing people, and then you're supposed to go out there and risk your life. Right. And then when you risk your life, then you're judged on first. Um, so we've seen this trend, and, and this is coming from the workforce. Okay, this is their words. Why are they victimizing criminals and criminalizing first responders? Yeah. And, you, and then they're like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And there's even this movement of, I'll go be a first responder in another state. Yeah. Especially in the fire service. Um, a lot of friends at uh, L.A. City Fire and uh, just the vaccine mandates, whatever your politics on that, uh, for them it's yet another dividing um, uh, message for the organization. Of, do I stay and do this very dangerous job? Um, or do I leave and go do something else, or do something something else in another state? Yeah. So tell us a little more about the book, Resiliency. What uh, what uh, what does it entail? Uh, give us a little tease on it, and then we want to know how we can get it. Um, so uh, again, it's a two part book. First, uh, resiliency strategies for first responders, and some of that is born upon my own personal experiences, and talks about different topics of um, you know just self care um, mindset. Um, the other thing, too, is um, we all come into this business with a history, and that's called our families. So some of those that family history um, plays out for some of us in the business, and we figure about one-third of folks who come into the first responder business are what we call a children of chaos, like myself. They grew up in a crazy home, um, and they came out of that, um, and they wanted to serve and they wanted to serve humanity in that way because they wanted to make the world a better place in the world they grew up in. Um, so we talk about that. We talk about, um, you know, sleep patterns. We talk about exercise. But, you know, these common things, but the most importantly is the psychological side of the house. Um, you know, a lot of folks don't know this. 80% of thought is subconscious. So what's going on underneath the surface? 20% is conscious. So how do we help people... Um, think in a positive way, and also be prepared psychologically to perform at a high level to keep people safe. The second part of the book is for the families, dealing with what you just talked about. It's a shift work. Um, you know, the shift drives the entire family. Right. And at the last minute, you get that call, like you and I said, hey, um, honey, I'm not coming home uh, for eight hours or, or a day. Well, you and I both worked homicide. Yeah. I was like, uh, I hope to see you tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but when there's a more increase in violent crime, that means it's pulling those the time away from the first responders. On top of the fact is everybody is short-staffed, and trying to get people to come into the business recruitment is very, very difficult. Well, uh, how do we uh, get our hands on the book? Um, well, you can go to Amazon and just uh, type in uh, resiliency for first responders. Um, you can type in my name, James Hyde, H-Y-D-E and um, get a copy that way. That's the easiest way. 
Um, and you can also or send me an email at info at uh, resiliencyforfirstresponders.com. All right. Yeah, well, thank we thank you very, very much for what you do, what you've done all these many years. And I can honestly tell you, without any equivocation or hesitation, uh, your approach to people dealing with uh, extraordinarily difficult circumstances has really, truly helped bring healing to people over the years. And uh, you've been, done a great service. So I, I want people to check out the book. I think it is of significant interest to many, many people. And it uh, underscores or exposes a big part of the challenges that we face as a society. So... Thank you very much for your time, sir. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you, and I uh, appreciate uh, Jim Hyde, H-Y-D-E. Check it out, Resilience for First Responders. It's, uh, it's worth the read. we got much more conversation coming up. Thanks, Jim. Welcome back. Thanks for staying on board. John McGinnis with you, KFPK News Radio. Went long on that block, but it's a uh, compelling segment, very, very important information. I hope you check out the book. And by the way, tomorrow... Tomorrow we have a, uh, I think will be a very compelling interview with the uh, the new CEO of PG&E. A lot of thoughts about PG&E in this area, and uh, not everybody's satisfied. We're going to have a, a direct uh, conversation, ask some hard questions, and uh, chat tomorrow with uh, with Patty Poppy, the new CEO, which, who brings a, a tremendous uh, wealth of experience and background as an engineer. And we're going to pick her brain tomorrow and ask her the tough questions. So join us tomorrow. In the meantime, stick around because you have the lovely and talented Kitty O'Neill. She's right here. We're going to talk to you next. Have a great one.